0: Welcome to episode 1975 of Effectively Wild, a Fangrass baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Raleigh of Fangrass and I am joined as always by Ben Lindberg of The Ringer. Ben, how are you?
1: I'm pretty excited because a job has arisen that calls for our very particular set of skills.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> this is why we're here on this earth. Right, this we- is why we have a podcast.
0: <laughs> Maybe why I'm here? Earth. Are Maybe we, so. Are we thinking about the same thing?
1: Yes. Yeah. In, in this case, it's a collaborative effort. So a player pooped himself. Yeah. Now that's not news necessarily because <laughs> uh, the the pooping happened years ago, but it just came to light by the admission of the pooper and. <sighs> That is Kike Hernandez, who was talking to Justin Turner. Justin Turner was uh, interviewing Kike Hernandez and was asking him a question. And the question was what was the most embarrassing in game situation that Kike Hernandez has faced? Yeah. And the Red Sox official Twitter account tweeted this video with the caption We're sorry we asked. Yeah. (laughs) And I am not sorry, they asked. I am quite pleased that they asked. So I'm going to play the clip here. It's a, a short clip of Hernandez's response. It's a little bit muffled, but I think you should be able to understand it. What's the most embarrassing thing that's happened to you during your game?
0: 2020 playoffs. I had a tooth infection. So I was taking some antibiotics from my
1: infection, and one of the side effects was diarrhea. And we got a big out in a big situation during the NLDS. And I screamed,
2: F yeah!"
1: I was DHing, and I thought I'd it uh, I went out to lead off the inning. I struck out in three pitches. When I went in the dugout, I went straight to the bathroom, put my pants down, completely started. So you're saying you misjudged the park. <laughs> I know what I'm saying is I <laughs> threw a game in the playoffs. So this uh, calls to mind one of your most notable investigative journalism feats. <laughs> one of your your trademarks, your hallmarks, uh, which is your investigation of Archie Bradley. Yeah, and when he experienced a similar incident, which was, I think, more daunting because Bradley didn't offer nearly as much detail as Hernandez did here. I mean, he just laid it all out for us. (laughs) He made it easy. You had to do some digging, and you did ultimately uh, determine with, with some high degree of confidence when that fate had befallen Archie Bradley. But here, I mean, Kike, he can't really complain about us pinpointing the pooping moment because he gave us all the necessary details that we need here. (laughs) (laughs) He, He could have kept it vague if he had wanted to, but he gave us more than enough information. I mean, he laid out down to the, the moment. I mean, it's a 2020. It's the NLDS. Yeah. He was DHing. Yeah. He was leading off an inning. It was following a big out that the Dodgers had gotten at the end of the previous half inning. He said it was a, a three pitch strikeout. He said that his shart accompanied <laughs> his, his yell of F yeah. That followed the big out that yeah. the Dodgers had attained. Uh, all of the ingredients are here for us to uh, pinpoint this moment. And we have. Yeah. Because uh, there's really only one moment that only it one. could be. Yeah. <laughs> <And so, laughs> the only problem is that it was a four-pitch strikeout, not a three-pitch strikeout. But given that it's been a few years and given what he was dealing with at the time, I think he can probably be forgiven for that. Although I guess uh, at the moment he was hitting, he did not yet know what he was dealing with. He was about, about to find out. But this was NLDS game one. And... The only other moment it could possibly be is uh, World Series. Like if he had gotten enough details wrong in World Series Game Three in 2020, he did lead off an inning and he struck out in three pitches, but it just it didn't fit the other criteria. He was not DHing then, and it was not a close game, so that there wasn't really a, a big out, and also there was no audible f Yeah, which sealed the deal here because you yeah. can hear the oh, moment. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we can actually. To be,
0: to be clear. <laughs> yeah. We can identify
1: the moment yeah. based
0: on what he says. We cannot right. he- hear the. It's no, not an audible. It was
1: not so explosive sh- that. Sharding. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it was not. No. But you can hear the <laughs> F. Yeah. Yeah. Just incredible. So this was NLDS Game 1, Padres at Dodgers, October 6th, 2020. And in the top of the sixth, Dustin May was pitching for the Dodgers, and this was a 1-1 game. And Dustin May got a 1-2-3 inning and he struck out the last two batters he faced in the top of the 6th and he, that was the end of his outing and he was pumped and this was 2020 so the fake crowd roared right and so did <laughs> so did Kike Hernandez just intestinally but but also audibly through the mouth he roared and he said f yeah as he recounted just recently and we can actually bring you that audio right here. This is like, this is the smoking gun. I mean, this very much reminds me of when the banging scheme first came to light and and everyone looked up the audio of the bangs and it was like, oh, wow, there it is. It's right there. We can confirm that that there was a banging noise. That's the feeling I got when I went back and watched the video and I heard the F yeah. And, and now we know what was happening at the moment when the F yeah Just rang out. Yeah. And we can hear the F.E.I.D. It's audible because it was 2020 and there were no fans in the stands. Right. So, I mean, look, the pandemic was terrible and the 2020 season was weird and bad and it was uh, not good that fans could not be in the stands to watch these games in person. However, there is one silver lining, which is that we can hear the F yeah that Kike Hernandez shared about this moment, and we can confirm that this was the time. So I'm just going to play the F yeah. And, you know, it's not pristine audio because uh, there was announcing going on. And so the F yeah just uh, happens to coincide with some other words, but you can hear the F yeah. So here it is.
0: Those long limbs whipping through. A lot to look at and a lot to like for Dustin May, who himself off of the mound after another 1 2 3 inning.
1: To look at. To look at. And so you can hear it more clearly, I will play it several times, uh, back to back, just so you can hear the F yeah, and this, this may be maddening, but it will only last for a few seconds. I just wanna make sure we can all hear the F yeah clearly. <laughs> to look yeah. 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 There it is. So this is uh, it happened exactly as he said. I mean, as you said, we can only assume that the rest of the story happened as he said. But- right. Everything else lines up here except for the fact that it was a four-pitch strikeout instead of a three-pitch strikeout.
0: Ben, mm-hmm. as I expressed to you off air, sure. I am, you know, on the one hand, comforted and also horrified by this yeah. incident. <laughs> episode? Mm, <laughs> shorting. Because, look, one of the things that I I feared was that we would identify when this moment had taken place and Mm -hmm. we would watch the at-bat that followed and we would be able to discern in a way that we might have dismissed in in the moment as like a a bit of dirt or Mm -hmm. other grit, but that we would be able to look at Hernandez and say, those are poop pants. I can <laughs> tell that those are poopy pants because there is obviously poop on these pants, right? Right. And I am comforted that I- indeed there is no visible poo on the pants. No. You know, mm-hmm. these are. He,
1: yeah. He even it turns his, his he turns rear his toward whole, the camera. He is yeah. whole
0: behind toward the camera. <laughs> yep. And as he started to turn, I was like, no.
2: <laughs>
0: and then and then there they were, pristine. Pristine yeah. white pants, you know? Yeah. The 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 kind of white on a, a baseball uniform that one only gets if one is DHing, right? Like, <laughs> right. you know, this these are these are our pants that have not seen the smudge of the fields even for a moment in this mm-hmm. game. So mm-hmm. I looked at that and I thought to myself, Well, that's a relief, you know, because <laughs> Well, first of all, you know, if if you've ever spent time as a teenage girl, you know, you've probably had a a period mishap or two. And (laughs) you live in fear of this moment, particularly in middle school when everyone is a cruel gremlin.
1: Yes. Right. So there's that
0: piece of it. It kind of.
1: Unlike now that we're in our mid 30s and we're very, very mature and uh, clearly would not devote well, but we 10 work minutes from, and but counting see, on a here's podcast. The, here's the thing
0: we work from home now. So, you yes. know, if that happens to me these days, nobody's going to know but me. You know, So it's mm-hmm. a sight unseen, right? Right. But when you are 12, and Mm -hmm. precocious and surrounded by cruel gremlins, you live in fear of just (laughs) such an incident. Different substance, obviously, but Mm -hmm. you live in fear, right? And Mm -hmm. as adults, you know, it's not as if we are immune to the vagaries of our intestinal tract, you Mm -hmm. know? Clearly not. Clearly not. And so Mm -hmm. I looked on this moment and thought, wow, that could happen to me. I mean, not the playing Major League Baseball Mm -hmm. and... (laughs) and and hopefully not confusion about whether there had or had not been sharding but -hmm. you know that could happen to me like out at target or something you know i could get an intestinal bug or have some crummy tummy of a a different sort and and suddenly find myself exposed in public Mm -hmm. right you know you just you never know and so part of me was like oh Maybe there is hope for us that even in again, the whitest of pants <laughs> that we might escape notice in in the event of an unexpected shirting. That we right. might be able to retire to the comfort of our homes and, you know, clean up and not have any tiny children point and laugh at us, right? <laughs> Which would almost certainly occur if you were like say in a Target and this happened because um, again, Target, a place for uh, terrible gremlin children much like a middle school. So, so, <laughs> I thought, oh, big sigh of relief. But then Ben, yeah, then the terror took me. Yes. Because this suggests, and this is a point that I, I think I made when I wrote at <laughs> some length about Archie Bradley pooping himself. <laughs> At the time it struck me as like a, a, a source of potential empathy, right? You never know who's pooped their pants. You mm-hmm. know? You never know who the poop where the poo pants are. You, you know, a guy might have pooed his pants and yeah. you should afford to him some grace and dignity as a person and and try to bear in mind that when we struggle, as we are all want to do, that perhaps we struggle because we have pooed our pants and you <laughs> cannot tell. But then I was <laughs> like, right, this is this is a second data point. In the there might be poop pants all around you. They're good.
1: There's no way to tell. Yeah, Yeah, you never know.
0: You never know. And (laughs) and I guess like I should try to get back to the place of empathy that I found for Archie Bradley, where I thought, you know, you never know what's going on with someone, and that's that's true. But I do worry about there being more poop pants maybe in the general population than I,
1: which is is, a little disconcerting. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I mean, maybe the most dismaying part of it is that Kike Hernandez himself. Did not know. He
0: didn't know. I yelled. Sorry. I yelled.
1: So did he. I I mean, (laughs) no one in his vicinity knew, but even he didn't know. Now, he may have suspected, in which case I, I really can't blame him for striking out. Because, I mean, if that's in the back of your mind, do you even want to reach base? <laughs> you know, like, well, sure, right? get back to the dugout as quickly as possible. I'm not saying you struck out on purpose, but, like, that isn't the mindset that you want, probably, when you're up there in a playoff yeah. game and it's close and, and you're trying to get on base. But the back of your mind is thinking, but if I do get on base, right. what if something did happen down there? What if it becomes visible? What if I have to slide? Right. <laughs> you know, like, mm. things could get bad. So he just he wouldn't have had time to do a self-inspection between because he was due up first the next inning. He couldn't check until he got back to the dugout after batting. So he may have sensed that something was released that he did not want to be released because as he said like extenuating circumstances he's, right. he's on antibiotics for a tooth infection and uh, diarrhea was a side effect right. So, and,
0: and, you know look there are all kinds of conditions that people have to live their lives with that you know affects the, how sure. their downstairs works So, you know mm-hmm. We're not here to judge any of those It's the no. reality of, of the human condition That there mm-hmm. are, you know Some downstairs issues sometimes So
1: yeah I, yeah, I feel for the guy I don't feel for the guy enough Not to <laughs> make fun of him A few years later on a podcast But, you know, he put it out there He's a, a good-natured sort Oh, seemingly. yeah Seemingly, you know He's uh, fine with poking fun at himself And I imagine he would uh, take this In the spirit in which it is intended Which is that uh, we identified The precise moment Oh, yeah. At which he unintentionally evacuated, <laughs> evacuated some substances, and, and we can hear it for posterity preserved on this podcast and yeah. on YouTube for, for all to hear. For all to and hear. And not see, but imagine. And again,
0: least. not to hear specifically.
1: No, but.
0: Because we don't need to hear that, you know. This is a no. This isn't like a, you know, this isn't like a comedy of the late nineties. Yes, yeah, you know, not, not doing like that.
1: A, one of those like player mic'd up sounds of the game. Oh no, Ben! <laughs> no, it's a very
0: personal moment. Well, and I, I, you know, of course, I am inspired to ask additional questions. I want to be. I want to be clear. I don't actually necessarily want answers to all of them, you know, because mm-hmm. like what's going on in your downstairs doesn't feel like my business fundamentally. But mm-hmm. so he, he comes to realize that this was not just a, a, a usual toot, you know, right. this was um, a <laughs> juicier toot. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he comes to realize that. And uh, you know he's in the clubhouse, and I assume that that players have you know they have like spare drawers lying around for mm-hmm. not for just such a moment, <laughs> but you know for for other moments because like sometimes you slide, maybe uh, your drawers get ripped, maybe mm-hmm. um, you know uh, you just have extra drawers, right? Yep. It's like when you go on vacation and you're like, why am I bringing ten pairs of underwear for a three day trip? I don't know, but if I ever need them, here they are. I got all ten. Mm-hmm. So I assume that they have extra drawers what did he do with his soil drawers, right? Because, yeah. you know, like, um, clubbies have to deal with a lot of stuff. Right. And, and Hernandez strikes me as, like, a kind guy. Like, he seems like a conscientious guy in what mm-hmm. we've been able to glean from his personality publicly. And so did he think to himself, these are not the drawers that a clubby should have to deal with. But then, <laughs> you know, they were in the bubble, so it wasn't like, yeah. you know, they're in the bubble. I don't know what the laundry facilities in the hotel were. I don't know if those were open. It's 2020. Everything was upside mm-hmm. down. Mm-hmm. Was he compelled to say, I-, I have these particularly soiled drawers? Did he throw them away? Did he just say, you know, I I have followed Meg's rule. I packed extra underwear for what could have been a brief trip. And so, uh, you know, I, sh- I shall simply discard these drawers. Yes, And then- what garbage does he do that in? You know? What is that garbage <laughs> proximate to? And, and like when he's, when he's sitting there and he, he does his F yeah and the, <laughs> the moment occurs, yeah. is there a palpable smell to other people? How <laughs> long did it linger? Did the catcher have a sense in the moment when he came to the plate? There's some stink there that seems wrong.
2: Like, yeah. <laughs> and,
0: and you know, like there, these are, was the umpire like, hmm, what's up with that smell? <laughs> what's where did that come from? You know what's going on here. So these are some questions that I have. Yep. I don't know that I want answers to any of them because I don't want to put the guy on on the spot. Like he might have just put them in the laundry and not really thought much about it, or he might have put them in the laundry in in a panic.
1: I mean, it was the middle of the game, and he's got to get back out there. He wasn't in the field, but still, he batted later in the game. Sure, but yeah. I think you you gotta give someone a heads up in that situation. I think Either you just throw him away. Yeah, you could discard I mean you can't just put that in the regular laundry and, and just have it be a stinky surprise for whoever's handling that next, right? Stinky so surprise. I think just or it's common like, courtesy. Do you
0: Yeah, or or do you stand there and think, Well, I could rinse them. Mm-hmm. But then, where do you, again? Where do you do that? Yeah. And maybe this is me not having a an appreciation, a sufficient appreciation for what the laundry facilities are like in that ballpark. Because I assume that they have on-site laundry, and maybe they have a like a big, you know, industrial laundry sink. Is still putting gross in a place Mm -hmm. it doesn't belong but like maybe you know he like surreptitiously snuck down to the laundry room and was like here I'm going to rinse these drawers and then he put those drawers in the laundry I
1: don't get the sense that uh, he's you know too ashamed to own up to this because he did just voluntarily offer this information to the world now he's had a few years to come to terms with it and and maybe it's funnier in retrospect than it was in that moment it is
0: almost certainly funnier in (laughs) retrospect than it was in that moment
1: (laughs) yes I think we can kind of guarantee that yeah. But but if he's the type to come out and, and share this with the world, then perhaps he would not have minded sharing it with uh, one person, let's say, in the moment. So I think he's, uh, he has a healthy attitude about this. Well, yeah. And uh, hopefully he doesn't regret it now that we have discussed this in some depth.
0: Yeah, I mean, again, like, you know, human bodies, sometimes you got – stuff happens with them. You don't have mm-hmm. to feel badly about that. Nope. And, and I could imagine – In the moment, you know, perhaps he also had horrible gremlins at his middle school. I could imagine flashing back to a a time in one's life where one feels vulnerable, Mm -hmm. where one is not a major league baseball player, where one is not playing in a postseason, and having a panicked, "I have to hide this," you know, (laughs) and then and then it becomes a caper of like what happened to the soiled drawers and who, who else had to engage with them. But, yeah, I've said drawers a lot downstairs. <laughs> you know, it's like, um, it seems like an underrated part of this for me is that I think that like. Head pain that one would have, like with a, an infected tooth or with a headache. I submit to you, Ben, that like pain that is concentrated in your head is the worst kind of pain because you're mm-hmm. like really not able to to, or at least I am not as a migraine sufferer, suffer like able to operate out or remove from it. You know, yeah. it it's never good like to if you don't want to break your arm. But, like, if you break your arm, it's not where your brain is. You know, famously, that's not where your brain lives. And so you can, like, have a clarity of thought, provided you're able to, like, manage the pain of the injured, you know, digit or uh, ligament or or whatever in a way that I think is easier than if it's in your head. And so I hope that the antibiotic curbed whatever pain you might have had from the tooth, because, like, those can really hurt. I can't imagine trying to play baseball with an infected tooth. I think I would. Really struggle to do that. I mean, I'd struggle to do that
2: <laughs> with
0: all my teeth at tip top shape, but you mm-hmm. know, underrated part of that. And then, like, go, imagine going to see the dentist in 2020 when you're like, you know, you got your whole mouth open and you're like, this is where the corona comes from. You know, I'm not saying he had, he was sick, but like, I would feel stressed about going to the dentist in 2020. And so, yeah, it just seems like a lot. Seems like um, the people who think that that wasn't like a real world series because it was a short season, you know, there's a lot of things that folks had to navigate that year, the teeth and the pooping yeah and the pandemic.
1: Well, he had a good NLCS, he hit well, and then he won a ring, so happy ending (laughs) to all of this, and this was our our hard-hitting reporting for the day. Hard-shitting reporting? No, I guess it was the opposite of that. That was the problem. Oh, no! But. (laughs) That's when the first thing you've ever said on the podcast. When this was oh, no. posted in our Discord group uh, on <sighs> Thursday morning, look, designated shitter was right there. Whoever posted it said, someone's going to find out exactly when this was because he offered too many details. And yeah. I just, I decided that that someone would Should be awesome. Yeah, I, I dropped everything and yeah. swung into action. It's just, it's rare that you can. Pinpoint with this level of precision when someone suffered a mishap such as this. So I wanted to take advantage of that opportunity and thanks to Kike.
0: I just I've come back around to it being, um, you know, it should be a reminder to us all. That we we never do know what's going on with folks, and yep. sometimes they themselves don't know. So we should, you know, treat each other with care and compassion. Although I do, you know, it is a little disconcerting that there might be, <laughs> you know, surprise poo pants around you. I yeah. don't know. I find that best, a little
1: best not to think about it. I guess. But mm, surprise. We poop have forced pants. everyone to. Yep. Here was uh, the foremost matter on my mind before. This the poop pants broke. Yeah, so I
0: can't believe you invoked soft poo.
1: It's <laughs> the
0: worst thing you've ever done on this pod. I demand restitution.
1: Uh, your Patreon dollars at work, everyone. <laughs> Thank you. So we got a, a press release from MLP on Thursday morning, and it was about a topic that I'm not particularly interested in. It was uh, MLP's new official sports betting partner in oh, North America yeah. is FanDuel. Yeah. Fine. So uh, they've switched from DraftKings to FanDuel. So we will probably be bombarded by the same number of ads with the same frequency mm. and same volume, but, but different it will ones. be for FanDuel instead yeah. of for DraftKings. But here's the thing that caught my eye. So remember how last year I think it was we talked about how MLB had an official beer and an official Cerveza. Yes, and and they were different. Brands, even though uh, those words mean the same things yeah. in different languages. So that they're just like looking for ways to shoehorn in an additional sponsorship somehow. So here's what the press release said As fans eagerly await the return of baseball, Major League Baseball and FanDuel Group, the premier online gaming company in North America, today announced a multi year partnership, making its industry leading sports book a co exclusive official co-exclusive no. official no. sports betting partner no. of MLB. No. Co-exclusive. No. <laughs> so I I had to clarify what was meant by co-exclusive because that sounded like an oxymoron initially to me. I mean, how can it be co-exclusive? Usually when when someone's an exclusive partner or an exclusive sponsor, it means they're the only one. Right. right? So I I was wondering, well, could co-exclusive mean that the exclusivity works the other way so that like FanDuel is the official sports betting partner of of MLB exclusively and also MLB is the exclusive sports betting partner of FanDuel or something? Like, Is it that the exclusivity works both ways or is it that there are multiple official sports betting partners of MLB that are co-exclusive? And so I replied to the email and I asked for clarification on that. And the clarification was that it's the latter. BetMGM is also an official sports betting partner of MLB. right? So it's FanDuel and BetMGM that are the official sports betting partners of MLB. So they are the co-exclusive sports betting partners of mlb according to this and the mlb person i was emailing with said these contractual terms can be interesting (laughs) which uh, i would agree with so i was trying to puzzle out i've been thinking about this for some time now whether co-exclusive is a crime against the language or whether that can be correct in a, a certain sense and I don't like it. I've Mm -mm. definitely decided that I don't care for it at all. And it it certainly sounds oxymoronic to me on its face. But I guess you could say that exclusive, it doesn't necessarily mean that that there's only one. It's just like excluding all others, potentially. And so if, if... BetMGM and FanDuel are the co-exclusive official sports betting partners of MLB, then they are the official sports betting partners exclusive of every other partner, right? (sighs)
0: That, I mean... Okay, but also that's <laughs> not what they want you to think of.
1: No well, I don't know what they want you because uh, if they say co-exclusive, I was like, what does that mean? That seems meaningless that it seems is like meaningless. a contradiction. you can't no. be co-exclusive if you're co-exclusive, then neither of you is exclusive and I don't even know what you mean by that. So that's what I thought when I read that now if if they had announced that each of them individually was the official exclusive partner, then I think, Co-exclusive probably would be incorrect. I think technically it's it's not necessarily incorrect because it's just, you know, like the first definition of exclusive is excluding or not admitting other things. So it doesn't admit other official sports betting partners, but it admits these two. They are co exclusive together, cooperatively, they are excluding every other official sports betting partner of MLB.
0: No. I'm not persuaded by that. I mean, I think that your read is right. Like that is the way that someone somewhere was like, it's fine. Yeah, that was the that was what they got to that let them go. It's fine. But I'm here to say it's still goofy. You know, like it can be goofy. Yeah, it can be fine, but it's Mm -hmm. still goofy.
1: Yes, it is. It is, however, not new. It was new to me, but I found that they used the same term to describe the previous deal in 2021 between DraftKings and MLB and BetMGM. So they used the co-exclusive back then, too. It is not a new coinage, but it's certainly not in common use, and I wholeheartedly reject it.
0: I also just think that, like, have we talked about how FanDuel is like a very aggressive... It's like very aggressive <laughs> as a name for a thing.
1: That's true. Fan yeah. duel. Fan yeah. duel. Yeah, You
0: know, like are they dueling each other exclusively? <laughs> are they dueling MGM? Are you in a fight with the casino which always wins?
1: Really, I guess it's supposed to be fans dueling each other for money, but it is probably more like the company dueling the fans and winning most of the time. (laughs) That's how these things tend to work.
0: A lot of layered and nuanced meaning here, you know? Mm -hmm. Just like a lot of it's like a it's it's layered, like, you know. (laughs) Don't go there. Don't go there. Pants in
1: the- <laughs> I, I hey was man. worried we were going to go there, but I started it, I suppose. Mystery, anyway.
0: <laughs> Mystery do all around yeah. us, potentially.
1: In other MLB press release news, uh, a little executive hirings uh, mini segment here. Mm. We also got a release that MLB had hired three executives to local media positions. Yeah. So, so earlier th- this year, MLB hired... Billy Chambers uh, to head up its its newly created local media department, and Billy Chambers is a, a longtime media industry executive who's worked with RSNs and local media and everything. And so mm. MLB has now hired three more people: Doug Johnson, Greg Pinnell, and Kendall Burgess, and uh, they've all been involved in various uh, RSNs and local media, and and they are. Clearly staffing up a department here yeah. seemingly to take over essentially for if the the Bally teams and the other teams that are defaulting are, are bankrupt and uh, are offering or being compelled to hand over their rights back to the teams or back to MLB. MLB is is suddenly hiring people who have been doing that on a local yeah. level to figure out, you know, like if suddenly 14 or 17 teams or however many it, rights just get dumped back into MLB's hands like that could be good in a sense if it leads to uh getting around blackouts and these things being available on MLB TV, let's say, but it could also potentially be disastrous, I'm yeah. sure. So I, like if they get the rights, I mean you still have to figure out like how do you produce the broadcasts and, and who does the like actual broadcasting and yeah. whose cameras are used and all of these just details to work out on a pretty short timeline here. Yeah. So they're staffing up to hopefully not lead to a a time when we cannot watch baseball when no one's broadcasting baseball games. So, I don't know. I'm I'm hopeful that in the long run this might lead to baseball being more accessible, but I'm also scared that in the short term it will be the opposite of that and also who knows what the prices will look like, you know, if we do get to stream all of these games in local markets, will they just jack up the prices, who knows, and what will the broadcast like there's just right. so many unknowns here and then if there's less revenue coming in from RSNs in the short term then will team owners seize on that as a reason not to spend and a justification for not spending so a lot of things uh, suddenly yeah. up in the air about the whole broadcast model for the sport
0: Yeah, I think that there are a lot of scenarios where in the long run this actually ends up being better for fans in terms of what you're able to access on on a per on your preferred platform Mm -hmm. but you don't I I think you don't ever want to give owners a reason to say they can't spend you know because they don't always have to be real (laughs) yeah you know they don't always have to be true is the thing about them they will grasp at whatever straws are within reach so that part does make me nervous but i i guess you'd rather that the league be like hopping to than not right
1: yes right exactly so the other executive news is a a team announcement Mm. which is that the blue jays hired james click yeah
0: they sure did didn't they
1: And he's, what, their their vice president of baseball strategy is, I think, the title, one of these new age baseball operations department titles. And uh, he's going to be involved in all aspects of the organization, it sounds like. And Click, of course, former Rays executive and more recently, former Astros GM, who just won a World Series with the Astros, but clashed with owner Jim Crane, who clearly did not want to bring him back and gave him a one-year offer just for show, basically. And click was then kind of cast to the winds at a point where there weren't GM jobs open and the offseason had already started. So it's not surprising that he is caught on in this kind of role. But I always wonder what it's like. For yeah. a, a team to hire someone like this who's clearly going to be in demand for other right. top jobs in baseball operations departments. And this is probably just, hey, let me you know not be absent from the game and I'll, right. I'll get some experience with another organization and I'll kind of keep my hand in as soon as some other job opens up. I mean, I don't know exactly what his thinking was, but it was a, a tough time to be kind of cut adrift and it, you can't unless someone's going to just fire someone and hire you. then you might have to bide your time and and wait a while for another desirable job to open up. And this is a pretty good way to pass the time probably. But I wonder from the team's perspective what that's like, given that you know almost with certainty that this person is going to move on sometime soon, right? I mean, I'm sure there's a mutual understanding that that's the case. Like the only way really that Click could stay, I guess, is if he took the job of, you know, Ross Atkins or Mark right. Shapiro or something, which doesn't seem likely. I no, mean, not particularly. And working together for a very long time, and it doesn't seem like their jobs are in danger or anything. No. So I'm sure it's understood that this is just, well, here's a smart person who's had experience with successful organizations, and so we'll bring him in in the short term and we'll benefit from his knowledge. But like, do you give him access to everything knowing that right. very shortly in all likelihoods he'll be moving on? Because you got to think that he would be on many teams shortlist as soon as some new position opens up. And then you just know that that person's going to take all that intel with him to your next team. At- yeah. But how can you not? Do that. Right. I guess if, if you actually want to get the full benefit of this person's knowledge and, and input, then you kinda can't cordon them off. Right. So it's always an issue for teams because uh, people move around and right. you know, you're not supposed to take actual tangible intellectual property with you, but maybe sometimes that happens. Right. But also you can't really just uh do the neuralizer from men in black and make right. someone forget everything. So right. they're just they're gonna know what was they're going on. Know? It's not that unusual a situation. It's like Alex Anthopoulos leaving the Blue Jays and going to the Dodgers before he joined the Braves. But still, seems slightly awkward.
0: Yeah, it's a tricky, tricky, weird thing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I guess, like, maybe you just figure, well, we'll get the benefit in the short term and right. and we'll learn things that the Rays knew and the sure. Astros knew. And then when inevitably he goes on to run some other team, well, he'll be pretty familiar with our operations, which will be kind of strange, but then maybe we'll gain some slight advantage against the other 28 sure. teams at least. So it's worth it on the whole. Yeah. But- <laughs> Unless it's like you're bringing someone in in sort of a kind of consultant role and right. maybe a little less visibility. You know, maybe you don't give them a login into every aspect of your internal system or something. And it's yeah. more of a case by case. Uh, hey, what should we do about this? You know, but from the sound of it the way it's been described it it is more of a sort of holistic uh we want this person looking at everything kind of position so i guess uh you just deal with it maybe yeah <laughs> it's it's a strange business
0: it is a strange business i mean i th- i'm sure that teams are realistic on on some level that like talented people are always in danger of moving particularly if they might graduate to uh you know a previous a higher position somewhere else but yeah i think you tend to expect they'll stick around for a little bit longer but maybe maybe they're like well I don't know if he's gonna move to Toronto, but maybe they're like, if you're moving internationally, even if it is just up to Canada, maybe you think you're gonna stick around for a little bit longer. Or maybe he's like, uh, I have sufficient decision-making authority here and I can manage fewer people and I wanna do that. You know, maybe mm-hmm. that's maybe that's in the cards too, who could say?
1: Yeah, totally possible. Maybe after putting up with Jim Crane and, and <laughs> the conflict there for a year, he's like, maybe I just wanna take a little bit of a gap year here. Yeah. <laughs> Just want to hang out I just, for. A I want a World bit. Series. Like, um, yeah. I'm at the pinnacle here. Like, maybe this is not such a, a bad time to have a slightly lower stress job for sure. a season. Or maybe he just wants to sample some chicken fingers recommended <sighs> by Brandon Belt.
0: Yeah, he heard about the tendies and he couldn't. Mm-hmm. He couldn't resist. Well, and you know, I think there's probably something to the idea that it's what it's March. I guess it was probably what February when we found out mm-hmm. about this. It isn't as if he went through. He hadn't gone through an off season getting scooped up and, and filling an available GM job. So mm-hmm. maybe he, in addition to wanting to take some time, was like, you know, the the timing of me being let go relative to the rest of the hiring cycle just wasn't conducive. Or maybe he yep. thinks, you know, people didn't want to hire him for some reason. I don't know. I don't know James Click at all. So I, I don't want to impugn the guy, mm-hmm. but he did go through an off season without getting a different job. So maybe mm-hmm. he's really excited about this one.
1: Could be. And then the last little bit of uh, MLB-related front office type of news. So you see this report about MLB and its lobbyists and florida mm-hmm. and minor league <laughs> pay and mm-hmm. exemptions to minimum wage laws so this was uh, initially reported by jason garcia of the seeking rents newsletter and then evandrelic of the athletic followed up on it but I just uh, it's not surprising right it's uh mlb and mlb owners kind of doing the thing that they do which is trying to pay players as little as possible right and in this case uh, trying to Pay players sub minimum wage In Florida and other states And what caught my eye though Just in light of the recent Conversation that we had about The Possible book bannings Mm -hmm. and Rob Manfred sort of not very visibly interceding and reaching out to Ron DeSantis's office, governor of Florida's office, to try to ensure that those baseball books that were on the list of books under review would be approved and back on shelves. That, you know, kind of looks in a different light to me now after reading this report about how cozy it seems like uh, these lobbyists are with that administration because uh, MLB hired a lobbying firm run by a top fundraiser for Ron DeSantis and then the (laughs) roster of lobbyists includes Desantis's former chief of staff. <laughs> cool. So maybe this wasn't so much like a a special call to uh, sort yeah. out this book business. Maybe it was more like, uh, well, while we have you, you know, yeah. like, well, while we're talking about other matters, uh, can we just, you know, maybe sort out this uh, possibly banned baseball book stuff? You know, it's like one of the agenda items yeah. in an ongoing conversation, and and then also uh, the day after this legislation was filed. Joe Ricketts, uh, the the patriarch of the family that owns the Cubs donated a million dollars to DeSantis <laughs> so all of this stuff is uh, kind of going on it's not particularly surprising or out of character for MLB and, and people might wonder well why are they going to this trouble now that minor league pay is going to be collectively bargained which is true but as Evan lays out in his piece this may still give MLB greater leverage in those CBA negotiations if there are exemptions to the federal minimum wage laws so yeah. that might be a reason for them to do it although mlb insists that that has nothing to do with it and, and they have oh, other sure, yeah. motivations here <laughs> but anyway just uh, wanted to note that this is, was not the only connection between mlb and the commissioner and uh owners and florida lawmakers it was not solely book related but also minor league pay related
0: i can't decide like what what Scenario I think is worse here. Like, did they think that they're going to be able to do stuff like this and then not have anyone know about it? Or did they know that people will know and they just don't care? Because, like, the optics of it are bad. Like, what they're asking for seems obviously bad to ask for an exemption to minimum wage laws. Like, there's been a ton of backlash to their efforts to curb the pay of minor leaguers at the federal level people don't
1: successful (laughs) efforts right (laughs) other than a lawsuit that that went against them recently
0: right but people have been i think appropriately critical of those efforts because it just strikes people particularly when you're dealing with guys at that level who aren't you know they're not going to be making big big money potentially ever and certainly not for a long time like the the best that you can hope for is that they got a a reasonable signing bonus and have the cushion that that affords them but like that piece of it looks bad and then the donation piece of it looks bad like it just is it feels like quid pro quo and we can look at campaign donations you can go look those up right now if you want to go see Mm -hmm. what your favorite team's owner has done in the last couple of election cycles it's all on Mm -hmm. the FEC's website like it's it's easy enough to find that stuff so I don't know which scenario I find more disconcerting, that they think that they will successfully sort of obfuscate those efforts and keep them from the public eye or that they know they'll come out and are like, whatever, it doesn't matter. We're just going to do what we're going to do because it might end up making us more money. I think they're both Mm -hmm. icky, Ben. I don't particularly (laughs) care for them.
1: Yeah, I would probably uh, go with the latter. I would guess that the latter is more likely. And then the only other actual on-field observations here, I, first of all, it's been a, a brutal week when it comes to injuries. Yeah, man. And we will be doing the Dodgers preview next time, yeah. so <laughs> we will, I'm sure, be talking about Gavin Lux, which yeah. is just a devastating injury for him and for the team. But Lux and Glasnow and Joe Musgrove and Brendan rogers it's yeah. just like— Can we just uh, please press pause? Suzuki's dinged up. Yeah. Just stop. Yeah. (laughs) Just please. Yeah. I mean, it's not new. This uh, happens to some extent every spring, but it is always just as upsetting when it's like, just uh, get to opening day. And and then if guys get hurt, well, at least it was a, a... worthy sacrifice because the games counted you know like yeah. i know they have to get ready for games that count and right. it is inevitable that they're going to get hurt sometimes during that process but it just sucks it sucks yeah. when your season is derailed or ended before it officially begins and and with Lux, like it's just one of those weird things where like he didn't he just he landed oddly just on a a fairly routine play i mean it wasn't so routine yeah yeah, it's just like you know you you plant your foot in the wrong way and there goes a crucial season in your career before it even gets going it's just it's the worst
0: yeah, it, it really stinks. They're all bad. Like, I don't want to downplay the impact that any of them will have either on the player or their team. But with Lux in particular, you just you feel so bad for the guy. Like, you know, his his first year in the big leagues, was 2020, and it was weird and he didn't play the way he wanted to. And, you know, he's been sort of moved around off his natural position and you know, the, the bloom was sort of off the rose, and then he looked like he was really starting to turn things around at points last year, and we got the, you know, the Hope Springs Eternal reports of, like, increased bat speed after going on a driveline and all of that stuff. And so you thought, oh, here here's the chance. Like, we're going to – maybe we're going to see the guy who, like, we had, like, a 60 future value on at one point and then to just – non-contact injuries are the worst because you just – yeah. This is not supported by medical science, what I'm about to say. I want mm-hmm. I don't mean that I'm gonna like, you know, try to sell you ivermectin or anything, but I don't know that this is like an actual thing in terms of the ability of players to recover or what their long term prognosis is in terms of, you know, how likely they are to be re injured. But whenever a guy, whether it's baseball or football or anything, goes down with a non contact injury, I always just feel more protective of him and more nervous for him when he comes back, right? Because mm. when like the force of your own body is enough to damage you, <laughs> yeah, it just feels like you're vulnerable. And I don't know that that is remotely correct, but that is my sort of experience of watching those guys where I'm like, are you okay? Are you okay? What about <laughs> mm-hmm. now? Are you still okay? Are you okay? Because it feels like they could just come apart at any moment. And so there was that view down sort of the... <laughs> Like over third base down to second, where you saw like the yeah. the it buckle, and you know what? I'd say to people if you haven't seen it, don't watch it. You know, <laughs> it's yucky. It feels gross. It's not like Dak Prescott, but it kind of makes you go like that's not supposed to bend that way. So it just sucks. It super sucks.
1: It does. On a lighter note, I did <laughs> enjoy the umpire uh, umpireless inning. Yeah. Did you see that? <laughs> so. I didn't
0: see it, but because uh, I, Ben, I don't know if I've bragged about this enough to you, but you know who I got to watch pitch this week in person? Well, Shari well, Sh- well, Sh- well, Otani. So yeah. I was on my way home from Otani. Um, yeah. So I That's didn't That's a good watch reason
1: it. to miss yeah, it. But it.
0: But I heard about it.
1: Yeah, it was uh, the Orioles and the Pirates, right? And they just decided to play an unnecessary bottom of the ninth, (laughs) even though Pittsburgh, the home team, was leading and the umpires had departed (laughs) and they just played on. As we've discussed in the past, uh, in the early days of Major League Baseball, they used to play unnecessary bottoms of the ninth sometimes until they decided, oh, we don't actually need to do this. But in spring training, weird, wacky stuff happens and we get ties. And we get uh, innings ending early, and then we get an unnecessary bottom of the ninth that, because the umpires had pieced out, was just balls and strikes called yeah. by the Orioles catcher, yeah. who's named Maverick Handley. Amazing. <laughs> Maverick Handley. No notes.
0: Perfect. No.
1: No, and uh, he did a good job apparently yeah. He was uh, pulling double duty here Catcher slash home plate ump And seemed like he was calling pitches pretty accurately And uh, people weren't too upset with him Granted, the stakes were not super high Given that this no. was spring training And the game was already decided Yeah. <laughs> so it was essentially a scrimmage at that point But he pronounced himself 100% accurate On uh, his ball and strike calls <laughs>
0: are you (laughs) contemplating his jersey now like does he (laughs) displace (laughs) (laughs) who's the umpire who had the perfect game
1: oh uh pat hoberg does he displace pat hoberg
0: for you in the pantheon of perfect games probably probably not not. no
1: yeah Uh, there's one questionable uh outside pitch that he he sort of framed for himself i would Mm. say and uh Gave himself the strike after framing it. Yeah. <laughs> so he estimated it would be called a call to strike most of the time anyway, yeah. 85% of the time. I don't know. But it's uh, one of those only in spring training sort of episodes. Yeah. So that was fun.
0: That was fun. Yeah. I will say I heard about it first from our friends Jake and Jordan on Twitter. Mm-hmm. But then it actually made Sports Talk Radio driving home. Wow. And I don't know who the... Knuckleheads were who were on the radio, but um, they were like, how? what's wrong with those umpires that they left? And it's like, Do you know how baseball tends to work like when it actually matters? Because, like, <laughs> right, if the home team is ahead and the top of the line, they don't have to play the bottom. Yeah. They were like, they is, These lazy umpires, and I was like, No, that you leave the umpires alone. That is not why this is fun. Like, it's not fun <laughs> because you get to dunk on the umpires, it's fun for other reasons. Like, clue in here, like, come on,
1: yeah. All right. So let's answer a few emails here because we get so little time to answer emails during team preview season, especially when Kike Hernandez confesses a shark, and then himself. we have to devote some attention to that too. But let's try to get through a few here. So here's a question from Miff, Patreon supporter. This is spring training themed. Could a AAA team in peak midseason form defeat a team of MLB All-Stars before spring training? Let's assume the MLB players are just sitting on their couches in mid-January and do not get time to warm up or practice as a team and that these are games that count for something, which I think (laughs) is an important stipulation because otherwise the MLB players would just be like, I don't want to hurt myself, so I'm not even going to try here. So for some reason, they actually all have to try, but the MLB players have uh, not. Ramped up. They have not been doing well. Uh, they've probably been doing something because players in, in pretty good shape year round these days. Right. So the answer might be a little bit different now <laughs> than it was decades ago. But yeah, what do you point. think? Mid season AAA team and a totally out of practice, not at all prepared team of mlb all-stars i mean yeah I, we could even go with just like an average mlb team or something well, to I make think it that more might interesting change, i don't know
0: I, I don't know yeah that might change my answer
1: yeah <sighs>
0: ben oh ben <laughs> because look a triple a team uh you, you might imagine that it, you know Maybe not every single one. Maybe not every single one. But I would imagine on average that a triple A team has at least one it probably has a couple guys who could be playing in the majors mm-hmm. if either there were room for them or, you know, their their club wasn't saying don't you need to work on some defense, though, so that we can keep you around for a little while? Although, that's less of it. They have less incentive to do that now. I don't know. I find myself pushed and pulled by this question because, on the one hand, if they're really like big league all stars, you know, it's an entire team of big league all stars, including the pitching. Yeah. You know, that feels like the deck stacked against them mm-hmm. but if they're average big leaguers, it's just one game weird stuff happens. I don't think it's impossible I think the the team of of big leaguers even if they are you know not familiar with each other in terms of their play they're probably winning more often than not I don't think it's impossible the AAA guys would win though you know what I mean that's not mm-hmm. possible it seems unlikely but not yeah like the- really unlikely it seems pretty unlikely. What are these gradations I'm introducing to this question? Who could <laughs> if say? You're,
1: if you're only playing one game, then yeah. I think it, it matters less that the pitchers aren't built up, right? Right. it's not like you need them to go deep into games. So right. if you have a, a whole all-star pitching staff, then each guy just has to face – I mean, you don't even need anyone to go an inning, right? Yeah. It, it can just be rapid fire. You can right. bring them all out.
0: One after another. You're and toast.
1: So many big leaguers these days are – they're going to driveline. They're training right. – some private Coach, uh, they're working out constantly. You know, most of them they don't have like off season jobs where right. they get out of shape and then they have to use the entirety of spring training right. to, to
0: get back just in shape,
1: melt off the weight or anything, which was sort of the initial purpose of spring training. Right. And everyone's always saying, well, now that everyone's in great shape year round, can't we just shorten spring training? And I think we could from a physical fitness perspective, but then would we get even more injuries? Right, right? the because, pitchers uh, still have to build up. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know what this would do to the pitcher's arms long term. But if uh, they just have to win this game for some reason and they're going all out, I mean, they're not going to have their peak velocity, obviously. So the difference between like a triple A team's average velocity when they're in midseason form and... A January average MLB team when they just haven't even been throwing in any Where? serious way. Like maybe it's not as huge as as you would think. Maybe it's not significant at all, but I would think that the MLB All Stars would still take this game. Yeah. It's just, uh, I don't know. I kind of think they could just roll out of bed and and win one from a triple A AAA team. I just I don't know like how much your timing is disrupted. You've had right. a whole winter off at that point, and you may or may not have been training in a really deliberate way. Yeah. So I could see just everyone's timing being so off and just out of sorts and not being in peak physical condition that you could steal a game from them. I think. You could beat an average MLB team. I think that is is overcomable. Yeah. All-stars. Yeah. It's harder. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, even maybe the difference between the All Stars and the average team is is less than it would be at, at that time too, because neither of them is at their peak. They're not functioning at full capacity. But I I just I think the gap would probably be too great. But I could absolutely see a a Triple A team that is uh, in mid season form beating just a completely cold team of average MLB players. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I will say that like I have been to I have been to exactly two uh, spring training games in person. I've watched more than that, Ben. I've <laughs> watched a couple, in fact, but I've been to two in person, which is I think important to getting the sense of like, hey, that guy is clearly a big leaguer, and that guy is not. From yeah. a, like a physicality perspective, that's even more arresting in person than it is on TV. And sometimes it's like, wow. They're different, you know? Those guys Mm -hmm. are built different. Now, some of those guys play for the Oakland Athletics. So is it a totally representative sample? (laughs) Who can say? Although that team is arguably in some cases just like a team of AAA guys. It was fun when the A's... Took on the angels, and you know, Otani was throwing in Fujinami through. So that was that was fun to get to see, uh, mm-hmm. him in person. And um, you know, it was like it was the lineup that had Tony Kemp and Jesus Aguilar and right. Diaz. And you're like, oh, this is the please don't file a grievance lineup. <laughs> yeah, that's what this lineup is
1: coming out. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> you know, that's what that that's what they're up to out there. And Estuary Rees, you know, um, mm-hmm. how Exciting. divisive. Yeah. It was great fun, you know, the vibe in that ballpark, super cool. Unsurprisingly, like there were a lot of Japanese fans there and it, and mm-hmm. it was nice. It was a good it was a good day at the park. And then yeah. I sent you a picture to be like, hey, hey. <laughs> That's right. I didn't hey, hey, It to was a good but yeah. Yeah.
1: here's a question from Julian. The parable of Levon Soto. Not sure if this was ever on your radar or anyone else's except diehard Angels fans, but the Angels started the 2022 season with an already lackluster infield. I recall that. Mm-hmm. By the time mid September rolled around, the Angels were playing meaningless games, and both the starting shortstop David Fletcher and his replacement Andrew Velasquez were injured. From the depths of the Angels farm system comes Levon Soto, who, despite never hitting above 295 at any level of pro ball, proceeds to hit 400 over 60 major league plate appearances and puts up a 181 WRC+, better than all qualified hitters except Judge and Alvarez on a full-season basis. On a rate basis, he was on track for seven wins above replacement over a 600-plate appearance season, more valuable than the other slightly more famous Soto. Of course, he achieved this by pure luck. He posted a 500 BABIP. 15% hard hit rate and 0% barrel rate. He walked only 3.4% of the time, and his single home run is a certified wall scraper down the right field line. By all peripheral and scouting indications, he will spend the rest of his career bouncing around as a sub replacement level player, wondering what angels in the outfield type magic possessed him in the final days of the 2022 season. I could go on about the beauty of Levon Soto's 2022, but my question is this How lucky was he in a mm. historical sense? How many other players have a legitimate claim to having been? the greatest hitter in baseball during a half-month stretch, almost solely by Babbitt Pluck. How many had that stretch the very minute they got to the bigs or, given the very real chance he never sees a big league game again, how many players' entire big league careers were as short, good, and lucky as Soto's may be? So I wanted to answer this because... As improbable and weird as that was, I don't think it's that extreme to have a stretch like Soto's in a sample that small. Lots of strange stuff can happen. In fact, arguably, Soto's performance wasn't even the flukiest one by a big leaguer over that same span. I looked, FanGraphs leaderboards, between Soto's debut and the end of the regular season, He ranked 16th in WRC plus among hitters with at least 50 plate appearances, which is pretty good. But seventh on the list was a player named Sean Bouchard, a 26-year-old Rockies rookie who was not even mentioned on Fangraphs preseason Rockies prospect list. And Bouchard's BABIP during that same period was even higher than Soto's. So Soto's was 500, and Bouchard's was 519. And granted, Bouchard had hit well in AAA and he had briefly been in the big leagues earlier that season, but that was pretty darn fluky. Like when I looked at the leaderboard and saw Sean Bouchard, I thought, who? (laughs) So and he was great over that span, but that was just one small sliver of a single season. And even in that single sliver, I found someone who was improbably better than Levon Soto. So if we were to expand the search to every range of two to three weeks from every season, we would probably find a lot more Soto-esque luck-driven hot streaks. Maybe most of them wouldn't immediately follow a first call-up, as Soto's did. But still, I think this just speaks to the enduring power of Voros's law which is named after Voros McCracken, who is uh, best known as the person who brought BABIP to light. But Voros's law states that any player can hit anything in 60 at-bats, which is basically what Levan Soto did, 60 plate yeah. appearances, I guess. and And he was at the upper range of what you can do. But really, you just never know. So if he were never to play in the majors again— That would be unprecedented because right now he has by far the highest career OPS plus of anyone in AL or NL history with between 35 and 60 career plate appearances. (laughs) He is at the top of that list which is, uh, I guess, semi-impressive. Maybe it's nice to be at the top of any list, but he has a 180 OPS plus and the next highest is at 162 with those very specific and strict criteria. So (laughs) given his age, he's quite young and the first impression he made there, I imagine that he will get a call up yeah. at some point and and he'll get a chance to uh watch his rate stats st- stink <laughs> sink at some point so
0: <laughs> stink at some point
1: yeah hopefully they won't stink but they will sink i'm yeah. sure and uh, if not, if he never gets called up again, then I guess he can console himself with the knowledge that he made some history and was yeah. at the top of an extremely specific leaderboard. But uh, he will probably get another chance and and then he will fall down that leaderboard or will be taken off that leaderboard entirely. But, but that's the thing. I just wanted to highlight that because uh, as – Weird as that was, I don't think that was even the weirdest performance uh, by an improbably successful player over that same specific span. So it really just goes to show that over two or three weeks, uh, anyone can do anything, including Sean Bouchard and LeVon Soto. Yeah. It's a strange, strange sport. Cam, Patreon supporter, says, I consider myself a very knowledgeable baseball fan. However, I have one big blind spot that gets me made fun of by my baseball fan friends. I don't know anyone's handedness. Mm. I watch more than 100 games a year, and yet this key piece of information disappears from my brain the second a player isn't on screen. If you were to ask me whether, say, Clayton Kershaw is a lefty or a righty, I would not be able to answer you with any degree of confidence. Unless a player is very famously a lefty, I never have any idea. I would take Clayton Kershaw pretty famously elected. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say. But, but I guess that just speaks to yeah. uh, to Kev's inability to retain this information. So he says, I guess my question is, is this weird? And does either of you have a similar hole in your knowledge?
0: <sighs> I'm so afraid to confess to this. I sometimes <laughs> worry that I have it wrong.
1: Oh, yeah. Handedness specifically? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Me, too. I feel like I have this to some extent. I mean, I know Clayton Kershaw's a lefty, but yeah. <laughs> there there are a lot of players who eh, could go either way. Right. So if it's like a team I'm watching constantly, I mean, right. when I was a fan of one team, I, I would know that. But there are a lot of baseball players out yes. there. And sometimes it can be hard to remember. And, and I find it hard to remember sometimes because it's so easily looked up, too. Right. That I, I don't feel like I need to really hammer it home and commit it to memory. It's not like I'm, I am need to like make flashcards of who's a lefty and who's a righty because it's always like a second away I can look up that information. And it's not always vital that I have it in my mind. So obviously for a lot of players, I do just because right. I've seen them a lot. But yeah, they're... A lot of players who uh I would have to think about it and and would certainly have less than a hundred percent confidence about it, so you're not alone cam
0: yeah, I think that i feel i feel like the the most confident in my mental recall on hitters
2: uh-huh
0: right like i can i can i mean i i feel like i know. Handedness player, see this is why you feel, you feel nervous about confessing it, you know, mm-hmm. because then people are gonna be like, she's managing her fingers and <laughs> you know, that guy throws righty. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying uh-huh. that I sometimes lose confidence and the minute I do that, my my doubt is overwhelming. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then I feel compelled to verify that my, my understanding is correct But I feel less compelled to do that when it comes to hitters because I feel like I have a better mental recall of them in the box in some ways, Uh which is weird because why isn't that true for pitchers too? You know, Ben? Why wouldn't that be? And again, like I know, (laughs) I feel like we're going to get an email. Somebody's (laughs) going to be like, you know, this is like the equivalent of like, was the grink there? It's going to be like that. But it's not like that. No, I
1: I don't think this is the measure of your baseball acumen is whether you yeah, know but that's whether A single player is a lefty or righty. I mean, again, like we can access that information right. quite easily if uh, we don't have it committed to memory for every single player. It's fine. And uh, yeah, I mean, I guess the more baseball you watch and pay attention to, you will have that knowledge. But again, you can't be watching every team at every time and, and there are the thousands of players. So it can be tough sometimes. Uh, we've talked about... Uniform numbers being something that we are just almost entirely ignorant of. Oh, yeah. I don't. I don't even consider that important information to retain. Like I I don't even have any hesitation to say, I don't know that because yeah. it's just, it's irrelevant to me. Like I, I couldn't care less really what someone's uniform number is, especially if their name is on the back, but also I could look that up. Right. I don't need to know that. Like right. maybe it was helpful to know that in the olden days where you didn't have like your at that app where you could look it up or you knew every what everyone looked like because you can see them on TV constantly, right? I mean, in the past, uh, it was helpful. It was the only way you could know who someone was right? is if you had your program or you knew what their uniform number was. But now it just it really is not important information to know. And my eye just slips right over it when I see it. I just yeah. I make no effort to retain that information handedness obviously is more important it yes. <laughs> has some, some bearing on your career and the outcome of the game so that is uh, more important to know certainly but yeah I'm I'm shaky on that at times I will admit to it
0: yeah I, I um, sometimes I, I feel it's like the it's like braiding my hair you know when I think about it sometimes if I try to hold on to it too tight I don't know mm-hmm. I can't do it anymore my fingers go nope Don't remember Mm -hmm. how to do that, you know? It's like Mm -hmm. um, temporary face blindness or something. I don't know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it's fine. This is a safe space. If Kike Hernandez can admit what happened to him, then surely we can admit that we might not always know whether someone is a lefty or a righty without looking it up.
0: I hope that like his tooth is okay.
1: Yeah. It's been a while. I'm sure it's fine. Yeah. I wonder if he had to get it pulled. Speaking of numbers, here's a question from Charles who says, In episode 1966, in the discussion of retired numbers, you mentioned the possible need for players to wear three-digit uniform numbers if teams kept retiring them at a certain pace. I just checked the rule book, and I don't see anything that prevents a three or more digit number on a uniform. (laughs) So what, other than tradition and the high likelihood of extremely cranky newspaper columns, is keeping someone from requesting number 101 or... 112 or 90210 or 666. <laughs> How likely do you think it is that we will see a number greater than 99 and someone's back in the next, say, 10 years? I think it's pretty likely because uh, I was listening to a Sabercast interview. Rob Nair was talking to Pat Neshek, and Pat Neshek talked about how when he would change teams, sometimes he changed uniform numbers, and he wanted to be the first to wear a certain number, Mm. and he thought it was a point of pride, you know, like he was 93 with the Phillies and maybe he was the first 93 or something and he just wanted to like check that box and and be the first. And I think he mentioned that some other players had done that and that maybe now they had all been worn or almost all, right, all the two-digit numbers had been worn by someone somewhere at some point and that uh, he and, and maybe some other players had made it a point to be the pioneer for that number. So once every number has been settled and and then the next frontier would be triple digits, right? And and why not? Like I I feel like yeah, there's kind of a, a conformist maybe reluctance to stand out in that way. Or maybe you'd people would think you're you're looking like you're trying to court attention or something. But if Aaron Judge is uh, the best player in baseball last year and he's 99. Then wh- why would you not want to be 100? Why wouldn't someone want to break that barrier?
0: I'm going to propose a couple of options. Are you ready? I think mm-hmm. most people probably think they aren't allowed to. I think that that's the overwhelming yeah. reason. I bet most people assume there's a rule in the rule book that you have to have a two digit number uh-huh. or. or no more than two digits right so mm-hmm. I bet that that's the the overwhelming reason is that we have previously lacked the imagination you know yeah. as a species so there's that piece I think that people would find it grouseable you know they would feel mm-hmm. like they could grouse about it and they would and then you would feel silly like you had pooed your pants but everyone mm-hmm. knew you know mm-hmm. it would be like a permanent <laughs> stay on your <laughs> <laughs> My, And you'd look, you know, I think on the one hand, you want to stand out on the fields, right? You want to be the best guy out there. You want to be an all-star. You want to be a Hall of Famer. You want to, you know, dazzle. But I think that people also do take, like, pride in being part of the team. And so I think that a lot of guys probably don't want there to be a ton of uniform variation, like guy to guy, Mm -hmm. like they might, they might prefer high socks, you know, or stirrups. Like there are ways to individuate yourself out there, but I think that there's like a range of, of individuation that players are like accustomed to, but they they want to be one of the guys, right? Because being one of the guys has been this thing that they've been working for like their whole lives, mm-hmm. and so I think they want to feel that and have some legacy to the number. I think you're right. That, I mean, clearly there are there are players who want to be trailblazers in the yeah in the number space.
1: Yeah, and in fact, that's no longer possible now with two digit right? numbers officially. They have all been worn as of mm. 2020, entering mm. the 2020 season. I'm shocked it took that long. Yeah, MLB.com's uh, David Adler wrote about this. Entering the 2020 season, there were three not yet worn numbers: 86, 89, and 92. And then reliever Hennessy Cabrera wore 92 for the first time, and then Jesus Cruz wore 86. Mm. And then the final one to be checked off was miguel yahure he wore 89 for the yankees and that was it <laughs> so the bingo card is uh completely fold so now if someone wants to wear a number that has never been worn before they gotta go triple digits and. I think there's just less stigma surrounding it than there was because it used to be like you had a high number. It was like Bush League. It was like, right. oh, I'm not going to stick, right? It's spring training and they're right. just handing out the high numbers because uh, there's so many players around. Right. But again, now you have Aaron Judge at 99, right? right? I, I feel like there's probably less of a high number means Bush League sort of connection in people's yeah. minds. And man, if, if I were a big leaguer... I would totally want to be the first triple digit number. Like that would be a great distinction to have. <laughs> like wouldn't that be a nice legacy to be the first person to break the bonds of of the two digit number? I mean, I don't know if it's like extra work for your clubhouse person to have to stitch another number on there because it's like non-standard and then it probably doesn't I mean it would be off center right if they'd have to like move the other numbers too so it might just be a hassle right and and kind of a custom job and And it was like
0: it might wrap depending on which numbers you pick it might like wrap around you in a way that kind of obscures what the number actually is
1: Mm -hmm. you know yeah. And as you are saying, I mean, the, the whole idea is uniform, right? right? It's supposed to be uniform. Like we're part of a team. We must uh, just subsume our individual identities to be part of the collective here. And so if you're trying to like look like a hot dog or something, like people would, would think that you're trying to seize the spotlight, which I guess you kind of would be if right. you were the trailblazer here. I just think it would be a cool trail to blaze. So I would I would do it.
0: I would be more concerned about wearing a number of like a a prior player who either like the fans really didn't like or maybe who did something naughty off the field like I that would be my aversion might be to that but I don't mm-hmm. I I think that the place where like being obsessed with the number part of it. I get it matters to some folks, but like uh, that's not the that's not the uniform fight I want to fight. I continue to find it I know there's tradition. The name should just be on all the uniforms. Every uniform should have a name on it. We shouldn't Ben <laughs> shouldn't get to do the the nameless ones, you know? You shouldn't be allowed to do that. And I'm looking yeah. at you Yankees. You're not the only ones, but you're like really <laughs> stubborn about this stuff. So put your put You know, put it on there. Yeah. As as someone who
1: does not know anyone's uniform number, I do sort of support that because the whole idea is like, well, isn't it fan friendlier to have fans be able to identify who that player is? Yes. And yeah, it's easier to do that now with a phone in your pocket, but uh, still. Still. Yeah. Because
0: sometimes, and especially this time of year, you should have to have names on the backs of your jerseys. How about Spring
1: that? training, mandatory. Yeah,
0: yeah, it should be mandatory because sometimes they're wrong. Sometimes you look at the roster online and it is wrong.
1: All right. Here is a question from Marco, Patreon supporter. I recently rewatched Mr. 3000. For those who aren't familiar, Mr. 3000 is about how Milwaukee Brewers player Stan Ross, Bernie Mac, angers his teammates by retiring during a 1995 playoff game after making the 3000th base hit required to enter the Baseball Hall of Fame. Nine years later, a clerical error is discovered, invalidating three of the hits and keeping Ross from the ultimate baseball honor. The 47-year-old player convinces the Brewers to let him rejoin the team to make his last three hits and sheds his selfish nature as he rediscovers his love of the game. That's the Apple TV summary. This made me think, hypothetically, if it were discovered that nine of Barry Bonds' career home runs weren't actually home runs and he needed to hit three more to reclaim the all-time home run title, and assuming a team was willing to sign him for the 2023 season, seems like a stretch, how many (laughs) at-bats would it take for him to break the record again? Or alternatively ask, how many home runs do you think Barry Bonds could hit as a 58-year-old DH in 2023? He has kept himself in shape. From what I've seen, not the same shape that he was last time we saw him on a big league field. He's uh, slimmed it down considerably, but yeah. he seems to be fit. He's a big cyclist now, oh. right? so he's trimmed. Uh, he hasn't like let himself go in retirement, which would make a difference, but not nearly as bulky as he was. And uh, I'm sure the reflexes and such have slipped. So. Like you would get to a a certain point where you were just incapable of hitting a home run off a big league pitching no matter how many at-bats you had, right? Like people will show the clip of the 70-something, like 75-year-old Hall of Famer Luke Appling hitting the home run in the old-timers game. But the fence was shallow. It was not like regulation. I mean, it was still impressive. But at a certain point, you just uh, wouldn't really be able to muster the strength to get a yeah. ball over the fence. I don't know that Barry Bonds is at that point. And you could completely cheat, of course. Like right. if you, you're just there, it's just a sideshow. You're just there to hit a certain number of home runs so you can reclaim the record and retire again. Then, yeah, you can just sort of sit fastball right and just have your home run swing every single time. Right. And of course uh, pitchers could exploit you completely and they would know that you were doing that so I guess you couldn't do that all the time. And probably Barry Bonds's uh, plate discipline is still intact to some degree, so he might not be completely hopeless up there. But he's been out of the game for quite some time now yeah. and <laughs> those years uh, probably have taken a toll. So I don't know. like yeah could he hit 9 homers given uh, an infinite number of at bats or however many at bats he could uh, take in his remaining lifespan
0: I bet he could I bet I he think could he hit
1: Probably nine. could nine yeah
0: if I, he I, were I, if he were given a bunch of if he were given a bunch of opportunities and that was all he was trying to do cuz like I bet his eyes still are really good
1: yeah I would think so you
0: know and like you said it's not like he isn't doing like, athletic stuff. He's just not mm-hmm. doing baseball
2: stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: But I don't know. Like, on the one hand, it would be a bummer and no team would do it because <laughs> even, like, even his his first club, like, even the Pirates are like, look, we don't have that many.
1: Yeah, I mean, no one away. wanted to give him a job in 2008, let alone 2023, so. Well, I, d- <laughs> yeah. I don't
0: think that was because people didn't think he could hit home runs No, it wasn't, <laughs> <laughs> but. But, but, <laughs> I kind of would like him to try because he would either do it and it would be super cool or it would put to bed forever the folks on the internet who are like, oh, I could hit a, I could, no, you couldn't. No, you couldn't. Because <laughs> you're the equivalent of, you know, 50 some odd bonds being like, yeah, I'm going to go up there. So you'd either do it and it would be rad or it would prove an important point to me personally.
1: Yeah. I'm sure a lot of players would have enough old man strength yeah. to get the ball over the fence. Yeah. Right? It's just like the bat speed would go quite quickly. Sure. And some of the pitch recognition and just the reflexes and everything. So, yeah, yeah you would totally have to just cheat and and sit dead red and, and hope yeah. that you got that and you wouldn't get that very often if everyone knew that that's what you were doing. But – does he have the physical strength to hit the ball over the fence uh, yeah, I would guess I would, yes,
0: yeah i would I would guess yes, and I think you're right that like best you would go and you'd stroke, but like if anyone could do that piece of it, doesn't it feel like it would be him?
1: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, without any illicit substances, he was uh, on the very short list of the best players of all time. Yeah. So yes, I, I think so. I don't know that he could hit nine in a single season. It might take him longer than a single season, although the longer it takes, uh, the harder it gets for him right. to do it. But yeah, if you gave him a couple seasons, I, I think he Probably could. He would be very bad. I mean, he could only DH and and the strategy required to just try to hit home runs solely would probably make him a pretty terrible offensive player, even with whatever remains to him of his plate discipline. But uh, yeah, I think if he had one job, he could probably do it if given a long enough leash. Yeah. Joe, Patreon supporter, says I canceled my MLB at Bat subscription in 2020 for numerous reasons. I was even quoted in a Hannah Kaiser feature about people leaving baseball post-pandemic. The last two years, I have kept up via the podcast. And the occasional Friday night streaming game This year, though, the itch is back Mm. I feel like summers haven't been the same Without the background of baseball I don't have the right TV package to see most games And the radio only brings me Royals games Which leaves a little to be desired Mm. Streaming via the app, at least radio If not TV, would be the easiest solution To my problem, but would mean Reneging on my moral stand Against corporate greed and general frustration With MLB's recent decision-making If I resubscribe... Am I giving in to the Manfred manification of baseball, or am I allowed to find happiness at the cost of subsidizing questionable business practices? Hmm. I feel
0: like we've gotten questions like this
1: before. Yeah, we get this sort of moral dilemma (laughs) question.
0: I'm trying to to remember what I said
1: because, (laughs) you know. Often we get a team-specific one. Right. I don't like my team's owner for some reason right. and therefore the grass is greener somewhere else. And we have kind of cautioned like it might not actually be that much greener. Right. You might find that you might go over there and the grass is kind of brown there too. Like right. It's uh it's hard to have a completely ethical consumption of Major League Baseball given the people who own Major League Baseball games and just the, the way that the whole sport works and has always worked, frankly. Right. But some aspects of that are more visible now than they used to be. But This is more of a a league-wide, maybe uh, partly just not liking the business practices, maybe just not liking rules changes, like if you hated rules changes, just the manfredification of baseball. Just uh, are you compromising your moral stance here if you you go back because you miss baseball?
0: I think a couple of things, and I'm going to share all of them, and none of them are going to offer a definitive answer. Are you ready for me to mm-hmm. to bob and weave? Sure. <laughs> you ready for a little bobbing and weaving? <laughs> I think a couple of things. I think that it's fine to change your mind on stuff, right? Mm-hmm. I think that like it is good to have principles, but I think that it is also fine when the stakes are relatively low to mm-hmm. like kind of change your mind and be flexible. Yep. So I think that that's one thing. I think that you are right that it is quite difficult to ethically consume in our current system. But I also think that it's good, still like worthwhile to try. So, you know, I I worry sometimes that when we throw our hands up and say, there's no right way to do this, that what we're really seeking is like a permission structure to do the thing we wanted to do all along. (laughs) Uh And I think that like how you negotiate that is, you know, it's tricky because I do think that there are limitations to what we can affect as change as consumers in a system. But I do think that there are ways to do that and that it is nice to behave ethically even if it isn't going to like upend capitalism (laughs) so there's that Mm -hmm. and i also think that like if you put on a baseball game every now and again the list of people ahead of you who are responsible for the moral turpitude of the sport is like really quite long and that it Mm -hmm. would take a while to get to you Mm -hmm. so i think all of those things and what you do with that set of stuff is is kind of up to you I don't mm-hmm. think that you should underrate the impact that you have as one person in the world but I also think that like looking back on the decisions in 2020 you probably want to like not be overrating the impact either mm-hmm. so you know <laughs> eh?
1: yeah I'm just looking at the Hannah Kaiser piece that Joe was quoted in And one of the quotes is, uh, I got the distinct impression, again, this is 2020, that the players were ready to go. And more than that, that Capital B Baseball had a unique opportunity to reestablish itself as a leading sport in the U.S. If it could get started before the NBA playoffs, they would be the only show in town and had a shot at potentially converting people who were home and bored and needed a distraction. Instead, the owners delayed encountered, and just generally did everything they could to ensure a short season with longer, more lucrative playoffs. I found it disappointing and a little disgusting. He was so struck by the missed opportunity that he sought out a feedback form on MLB.com, sending a long missive into the ether about how the sport was facing a demographic crisis i never heard back of course who knows who got that form so that was frustrating (laughs) so i understand being frustrated about it and if you want to vote with your wallet and say this was beyond the pale and i can't support you anymore then, you know, yeah, are you uh, going back on that vow now if you decide actually I am going to subscribe to MLB TV and watch some baseball games? Uh, Yeah, I I guess you are, but I think it is kind of okay to do that. I don't know. I mean, it's tough because, like, yeah, if if enough people presented a united front and said, uh, we will not stomach this and we will make the owners feel the economic uh, hit because of the way that they're acting, then we will force them to change. Great. But uh, that's probably not going to happen. You're probably not going to bring them to their knees by you making your solitary moral stand or maybe not totally solitary, but not enough to make a difference. So there could still be a a moral rectitude and righteousness in taking that stand, even if it's not going to have any sort of tangible effect. But also, ultimately in a sense you're you're kind of conceding their power to dictate your access to baseball or enjoyment of baseball it's yeah. like in a sense are, are you letting them win in a way because uh, they have poisoned it for you and, and soured it for you. I mean, I found that frustrating. I certainly hate the zombie runner as much as anyone in the world, right? But I'm not going to quit baseball because of it. Now, I'm not in the typical position that sure. your average fan is, but, but still, even if I were just an average fan who didn't have any sort of uh, financial or professional stake in paying attention to baseball, I don't know that I would walk over to that because any... Value in my sending a message there or any revulsion I have about that rule or other changes or ways that owners have acted or anything. Ultimately, depriving myself of baseball, which I still love and enjoy, probably would not make me happier. And we only have so much time on this earth and so many things we get to enjoy. So I just, I don't know whether drawing that line in the sand and saying I'm going to send a message at the expense of my own enjoyment. Now, if you can't enjoy it anymore because it's just soured you so much on it, then that's one thing. But if you find yourself missing it and now you're depriving yourself of this thing that you love... Because of the stewards of baseball who are not doing a great job of stewarding it in your mind, then I don't know, in a way, like maybe the game, the sport, your enjoyment of it is is bigger than them and you could kind of push through and not let them ruin it for you would be another way to look at it and yeah. just sort of savor the things about it that you do still enjoy and uh, know that hopefully it'll outlast the people who are doing the things that currently are upsetting you.
0: Well, and I think that hearing the quote, and I, I don't mean to say that this is all that it is, but particularly yeah. if the thing that, that you found the most galling in 2020 was sort of the missed opportunity of it all in terms of expanding the game's reach and and really solidifying like a new generation of fans, like that. In particular, strikes me as something that like you can be done worrying about. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, not that like the game doesn't need to expand and that it isn't important to appeal to to younger fans and a and a more diverse fan base. Those things are important, but if the if the beef in twenty twenty in particular was, yeah, had a real shot to expand the reach of the game in in the zeitgeist and you missed it, like. Of all the things that baseball does badly, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that one strikes me as among the least harmful. So you can Mm -hmm. just let that one go, you
1: know, if you want it. You don't Mm -hmm. have to. Could. Mm-hmm. I mean that was uh, back when Kike Hernandez was having his incident and he now feels comfortable coming clean and uh, telling us all I mean, about it so enough time has passed.
0: Ben, that... he came clean much <laughs> earlier than this. Yes.
1: <laughs>
0: I hope.
1: <laughs> one
0: yeah, would hope, no, yes. because of the he was having downstairs issues.
1: Here's one that I've struggled with. This is from Brendan <laughs> I Who thought says, you were going to
0: say, I have also struggled with downstairs issues. And I was going to say, Ben, I don't I mean, look, want to Haven't we know. all at,
1: at one time or another? I know, it's, but like there's just the-, the there's We the, don't generally announce it and uh, <laughs> you can't.
0: Yeah, there's like the, the reality of it, right? In much mm-hmm. the same way that like we're all going to die at some mm-hmm. point, but we don't mm-hmm. have to dwell on that and I no. don't need to know specifics.
1: Yeah, right. Don't want to <sighs> know. All right. Brendan says, we refer to baseball players as falling into one of two categories, pitchers and position players. I've never liked the latter term, mostly because I think it's sort of clunky in the mouth. It also seems to me to be a more modern version of pitchers and hitters, Mm. with the term hitters being replaced in favor of position players because pitchers also hit. I admit I could be wrong about this. In a universal DH world Mm. where pitchers, with one notable exception, no longer hit but do, of course, play a position – Isn't the pitchers and hitters categorization better? Yes. I think this is both technically correct, which is, of course, the best kind of correct, but also just a better, smoother way of talking about players with each category being a two-syllable noun referring to the fundamental action each type of player performs, ending in ER. This nomenclature, to my ears at least, has a pleasing unity of phonetics and meaning.
0: Yeah. I I fully support the adoption of a pitcher-hitter framework because... (laughs) When you do have an Otani, we have a specific term for that too. They call him a two-way yeah. guy. You know.
1: Yeah, and it is a slight to pitchers to suggest that they're not playing a position, right? Because of course they are.
0: They are. They can earn a Gold Glove doing so, and everything.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My only argument in favor of using position player, which I sometimes do, is that sometimes if I'm, let's say, looking at a leaderboard or something and I want to say that someone is a, a top 10 and I don't want to say hitter because maybe they're not a top 10 hitter, right? But they're a top 10 position player like let's say they're they're top 10 by war but not by wrc plus or something then what do i say i don't want to say top 10 hitter because it's not the hitting that they're in the top 10 of but they're a top 10 position player right what what else can you say non-pitcher top 10 non-pitcher no that's kind of terrible
0: that's super clunky
1: yeah yeah i think there is some utility still to position player in that case at least
0: Yeah, I think that that is a fair use case. And I'll say, as an editor, like hitter, batter, position player, dude, you know, Mm -hmm. sometimes you just need words because at a certain point you get tired of saying the same thing over and over and again. Over and over and again? Over and (laughs) and over. Leave it in. (laughs) Uh, Very loose episode. Oh, don't
1: go there. You Uh, started. We went there. Yeah, we went there. Yeah. From the get-go. <laughs> All right. um, but yeah, I
0: think that allowing oneself a range of options from a writing perspective is useful. And I, I take your point that you might want to provide some specificity to the contribution that they are making. And so Mm -hmm. if you said position player, it sort of broadens the scope beyond the hitting piece of it in a way that might be useful if one is comparing them against other such position players. But I think generally, in many cases, if not most, that the pitcher-hitter distinction is a smoother way of, of talking about it, especially now that we're in a universal DH era.
1: So. Related question from Michael, Patreon supporter. What if, peeved that the MLBPA logo shows only a batter Mm. and feeling that it reflects an underlying bias, pitchers decided to form their own union? First and most importantly, would Otani join the Rebels? And more generally, mm. what would be the effect of separate pitcher and batter unions, each negotiating separately with MLB? <laughs> so, oh, my God. What a first nightmare. of all, the Otani question. There's a poll at our Facebook group. I mean, it's not an uncommon question. Like, is Otani a pitcher who DHs or is he a DH who pitches or whatever? Mm. The whole point is that he's both. He's, he's all both. of those things. Like, right. why would we classify him as one or the other when the whole wondrous unionism unicorn nature of Otani is is that he is all things right so i i would not care to make a decision ultimately I guess the question is like is he better as one or the other is he more valuable as one or the other and that's kind of varied by the season and I guess at this point you might have to say if you could only choose one you would probably choose pitcher right if only because he's a DH and that's not quite as valuable although if he were not a pitcher then he could play a position in the field and he'd probably be pretty good at that too anyway would Otani join the Rebels Uh, I don't know he gets along well with everyone maybe he would be the, the, the go bridge. between yeah, yeah the, you could bring yeah.
0: everybody together I yeah. think that there's a lot of reasons why this would be bad and not work but mm-hmm. can you imagine trying to sort out the rule stuff if you had two actually <laughs> distinct bargaining units
2: oh gosh yeah. it would
0: be I think a real mess I think that Being able to represent like the collective group that are the players and smooth over some of those rough edges before you get to the table is really useful. And I know that like MLB can implement rules in a unilateral way, but they do tend to want buy in from the players. And if they were, if they had to deal with hitters and pitchers separately i i do suspect that they would do more unilateral rule imposition because they'd mm-hmm. be like this is too hard
1: yeah right it, there are already kind of clicks on a lot of teams of the pitchers yeah. and, and the hitters right because uh you know the, the pitchers they associate with other pitchers more and, and hitters with hitters batters with batters so uh, this would exacerbate that there might yeah. be Open animosity <laughs> right, and there are already i i guess at times maybe interests aren't fully aligned, or there may be uh pitchers who are more interested in in certain priorities in bargaining and and hitters uh in others, but there's a united front i mean i probably just like divide and conquer right like this would be bad. For players just because uh, MLB the owners could kind of Use them you know pit them against each other In some ways right and you'd have Smaller bargaining units It it just it wouldn't be a hole Facing MLB across the Table and there could be squabbling And I think It would probably not go particularly Well with the players right (laughs) There would be all sorts of wedge Issues here that They could uh, shoehorn in between Them to try to just Inflame little grudges And everything and I think Probably the effect would just Be that uh, neither of them would Get as good a deal as uh, all of the Players can get together
0: Yeah yeah yeah
1: That's probably the big takeaway yeah, I would think
0: yeah. yeah yeah can you imagine what the Sticky stuff episode oh. would have been like If they had separate
1: groups <laughs> Yeah right oh man But then I how mean, what it, would It's p- almost like the the pitchers would almost have to Bargain with the hitters, right. in the dish, it would be like a three par- it wouldn't even just be like would it would it be just the the pitchers about- and the hitters <laughs>
0: you were about to say three way and then you stopped <laughs> you I, I think you were i would-
1: i i probably was i don't I know think if I even realized it, but I think you were about to would it be like They would each have a place at the table at the same time, or would it be pitchers negotiate with the league and then hitters negotiate with the league, or would pitchers and hitters negotiate with each other?
0: Yeah, and then they'd be be like, you know what we should do? We should form one union, (laughs) (laughs) so we don't have to keep doing this. this. Much
1: better and simpler. Why didn't we think of this from the beginning? All right. Last one. Francesca says, I was listening to a spring training game today, and the broadcast mentioned a partial shift being utilized With all the discussion at the moment about the new rules changes, this wording stuck out to me. In the year 2023, what constitutes a partial shift? Is shifting an all-or-nothing term where any deviation from standard positioning means it's a shift? Or is a partial shift an indicator that the defenders didn't move very far? Or maybe it means only a couple defenders moving? How different is the meaning of the phrase this year versus previous seasons? Should we even use the term anymore? Or is every shift now just a partial shift, rendering the partial in the term redundant? Oh, This made me think, like, on Baseball Savant they have a term called the strategic shift, right? Which right, uh, which
0: I always was like, aren't they all supposed to be? <laughs> yeah. That? I think
1: they would all be strategic. Yeah. But that in the past might've been called a partial shift where it's just, it's not like the full over shift, right? It, it might right. just be kind of one player playing in that position. It's just a less extreme version of it. And you can still sort of do strategic shifts, at least some of them. And like, you can move players from the totally straight up standard right. alignment. So you could call that a partial shift, I suppose. But maybe we should just retire the term altogether and yeah. just say shading up the middle or something. Like,
2: shading. I guess we could call mm. a
1: partial shift basically like the closest you could get to the old shift, the that old That really rolls shift. off the tongue, Ben. If, well, no. I mean, we could still call it <laughs> <laughs> the closest you could get to the. No. <laughs> We could say that a partial shift. The definition of a partial shift is just like the closest you can get to the old sure. overshift yeah. that is now allowable. So it's just you know lining up as close as you can get without transgressing. I guess you could call that a partial shift, and maybe that would be sort of a useful term, <laughs> just because we might see that fairly often. Just to, yeah. you know going as far as they possibly can without going over the line. So I I would be okay with calling that. Just like the most extreme allowable alignment to be a partial (laughs) shift, you know, and and there there could be some weird unorthodox ones that teams try from time to time, of course, and uh, you can still have an extra infielder if you want, and, and there's still some things you can do, but... But I don't think we should always say shifting if it's just like playing more up the middle, yeah than than the standard alignment. I think we could just say shading or playing more up the middle or something, so maybe we should just say shift less,
0: yeah, I mean, I think that we will have fewer occasions where we feel compelled to say that, yeah, so I think it's gonna some of this is gonna take care of itself, but yeah, you're right that we're. You know, we're going to have to adjust the vernacular a little bit. You're you're such a sport for putting up with my bad jokes, Ben.
1: <laughs> no, I, I'm always uh, down for terrible jokes. Would have been
0: not. quite an acronym, you know. You'd really have to.
1: <laughs> yes. All right. Let's end with the past blast. So, i going to do a follow-up on, on last episode's Pass Blast, but I'll do the new one first. So this is the Pass Blast from 1975 and from David Lewis, an architectural historian and baseball researcher based in Boston. And the 1975 Pass Blast is the designated hitter goes back to school. What is good for Indiana must be good for the rest of the country, began an October 21st, 1975 article in the Albany, Oregon Democrat Herald. That quote came in response to the National High School Federation's Baseball Rules Committee bringing the designated hitter rule to high schools nationwide after a trial in the Hoosier State. The high school version of the rule differed slightly from what was used in the American League as coaches were able to substitute a DH in the batting order for any of their nine fielders, not just the pitcher. Additionally, that fielder was allowed to come to bat for themselves at any point during the game, after which the DH would be disqualified. Due to a different high school rule, the player chosen as the DH could come back into the game in a different position, but the DH role would be eliminated for the remainder of the game. A nationwide poll reported that 60% of high school coaches approved of the DH. The Democrat Herald provided more insight into the opinions of coaches in Oregon. Reactions were mixed. West Albany coach Tom Hawkins took a neutral stance saying, I don't think it's a bad rule, but I think it is insignificant. Another coach, Wayne Swango of Harrisburg, did not like the rule, suggesting our best nine players will be out there anyway. We don't have many past the first nine. Swango or Swango added, I think the pitcher should hit probably because I used to be a pitcher. Terry Leininger, coach at South Albany, agreed the rule would be insignificant as at the high school level, a team's best pitcher was often also its best hitter. Overall, 55% of Oregon coaches supported the rule, according to the Democrat Herald. The DH has remained a part of high school baseball ever since. In 2019, the National Federation's Baseball Rules Committee adopted a precursor to MLB's Otani rule in which someone playing the field or pitching can be designated as the DH and is allowed to remain in the game after they are pulled from the field. It's interesting that uh, sometimes the amateur baseball rules really move in lockstep with yeah. MLB rules, and they don't always need to. We could have separate rules, but it's just the the influence of MLB kind of impressing itself upon all levels of baseball. And then I guess uh, the idea that, well, if some number of amateur players aspire to be pro players and maybe major leaguers someday, then there should be some semi-consistent conditions so they can prepare for that. But eh, sometimes uh, things make sense for major leaguers that don't always make sense for for amateur players but there's a great influence there so you get the dh in the american league and then shortly after that you get the dh in high school so that's the 1975 pass blast now as you will recall the 1974 pass blast was about an article from 1974 in the la times it was a letter to the editor by a man named richard e truman who wrote in to talk about a decision that Walter Alston had made and some criticism that a newspaper columnist had lodged against Alston and was talking about how he had developed a computer program that was able to detect the value of certain strategies in games and how maybe one day teams would look at these things in that way and would approach baseball scientifically and look at the math and make the smart percentage plays. And then we dug up an article article. article from 1959 that mentioned the same researcher, Richard E. Truman, who even then was doing this in-depth computer-based analysis. And I was very intrigued because I had not heard of Richard E. Truman, and he seemed to be a true sabermetric pioneer and and really seemed to be decades ahead of his time. Someone in our Discord group said it was like reading a, a time traveler, you know, just going back in time and writing letters to the editor about sabermetrics, knowing things that we know today, but that so few people knew then. And I've Read a lot about sabermetric history, and I still was not familiar with Richard E. Truman's work, so wanted to dig up more about him. I determined that he had passed away fairly recently in 2015, but just didn't know a whole lot about his early baseball research. And so I've done a deep dive and gone down a, a Richard E. Truman rabbit hole here. And I guess uh, the bulk of this can be a snippet or collected snippets of a conversation I had with Richard's son, Greg. Now, Truman is uh, spelled not like the president, but T-R-U-E-M-A-N. And Richard E. Truman, which is what he went by in his published work, he went by Dick in real life, Dick Truman. So this is Greg Truman, Dick's son telling me about the life of his father and some of his uh, career and his early baseball research. So this is uh, about six minutes or so clip from a conversation that I had with Greg Truman this week.
3: I've been looking forward to this call. I've been thinking a lot about my dad. It's just really fun to think about his life and and his love of baseball and just to think that he might get a little bit of love from the uh, the industry that he was, was there before and was thinking about before there was a baseball statistics industry. He was always so scornful of the sacrifice bunt. That was his real pet peeve. And that was one of the first things that he figured out was that that was uh, just statistically not a, not a great strategy. And he also was on to uh, bases on balls and the idea of on-base percentage that was also something that he had noted that the most important thing was to get on base and that the walk was as good as a hit. You know, he had some stats behind that. He's kind of like a archetypal American male of the 20th century. He's a child of immigrants. He grew up on the south side of Chicago in a multi-ethnic, multi-racial neighborhood. His front teeth got knocked out playing stickball when he was a kid. He was an uncoordinated. He's like a classic sort of quant. Uh, he was a uh, math, music kind of nerd. And he played cello. He went to college when he was 16. He skipped two grades, went when he was 16 to the Illinois Institute of Technology. And he went off to the war as a radio technician when he was 18. After two years of college, he came back on the GI Bill and graduated from Northwestern. He immediately got a couple of master's degrees and started teaching. And then he got involved in the aerospace industry. He was at JPL, Jet Propulsion Lab. He was doing uh, telemetrics and I advanced calculations for the Mars probe. He went to Hughes Aircraft and was a senior staff mathematician at Hughes Aircraft. So he was literally a rocket scientist. All, all the while he was really interested in baseball and he would publish these occasional articles. Uh, he was, when he wrote the one in 1959, I think he was working for IBM. So he was sort of promoting the IBM computers. After aerospace, He decided he wanted to complete the PhD that he'd started in the early 50s, in the mid-60s, and he worked full-time at Hughes Aircraft and raising four kids in the suburbs of L.A., driving into Hughes Aircraft in Culver City, and completed his PhD in operations research at USC, and then became a professor at Cal State Northridge, which was then San Fernando Valley State College. He actually proposed to his PhD committee that he write his PhD dissertation on baseball, statistics and probability and strategy and they told him no we wouldn't hire you and you'll never get a job if you do that so he ended up doing his dissertation on like sequencing elevators in 100 story buildings when you have 20 elevator banks and there's a call on this floor and that floor so that's what he ended up doing of scheduling random transportation systems. So you can see it's the same, it's probability and it's what they call operations research and management science, which is what he was a professor of. He was at one point the president of the Operations Research Society of America. And I know he gave a talk at their annual conference about baseball, which was sort of an unheard of thing to talk about. And uh, we grew up with a terminal in the dining room it was connected to the mainframe at the university i learned fortran and basic to help me do my math homework and it uh, it really delayed my math skills because i had the computer and uh you know he was just a uh, sort of wonderful quantity almost on the autism spectrum guy didn't really understand people that well but classical music really appealed to him especially bach we grew up with the um, who's who in baseball and the baseball register he had all of those he was a dodgers fan in la he was originally a a white Sox fan my first job was working at major league baseball when i got out of college i went to princeton and i i went and got a job at major league baseball working on this week in baseball which was not your typical ivy league uh post-grad first job and uh I ended up working at baseball for a few years, and then I made a documentary about Americans playing baseball in Japan, and then I wrote a movie script that had a baseball player in it, and so I was very involved with baseball in my own way in the beginning of my career. When I was working at baseball, that was when Rotisserie League was invented by the guys at Sports Illustrated. We were buddies with them because we played in a softball league in Central Park, and so we started the second Rotisserie League at Major League Baseball Productions. And the first rotisserie league was National League only. So we started the American League. So I was involved in the in rotisserie baseball from the second season through the first 10 years of that. And, you know, that was really all about baseball statistics. Just an interesting tie-in, I think, to my dad's career and passion. He advised me, he looked at it, and he said, okay, I see you've got eight Categories of statistics. You've only got 10 teams in your league, and you've got whatever it was, 12, 13, 15 teams in the league. So he said, positions like first base, you could pick the last first baseman, and they'd still be significantly effective for you. But the positions that you want to pick are the positions where there's not 10 good players. And he also pointed out that saves was a disproportionately valued statistic in this league because it was one of the eight statistics, and there's only you know, six or eight players who were accruing significant saves. So we said, skip the first baseman, let them bid up the superstars, wait, you know, in the auction until just sit, 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 and then get some relievers and fill in your team based on the criteria that he gave me. And, and my partner and I won the league the first three years, and then they kicked us out of the league. He was an associate of Earnshaw Cook. He, he was in correspondence with Earnshaw Cook. He shared a lot of information with him. He was a popularizer and uh, an early guy. My dad was a very low-key, humble guy and not a glory seeker at all. For him, I think it just became a kind of hobby. He wrote a lot of letters to the editor. He would also write about other statistical sports things like the idea of a five-set tennis match. He thought that was silly because if you look at the statistics, the winners don't change much from a three-set winner to a five-set winner, things like that. He died just a, a few weeks shy of his 90th birthday. I think he felt like a, a little bit of vindication, and you know, he was always shaking his head at baseball strategy. He started to see it come around to a more rational, you know, math-based,
1: approach. So that is Greg talking about his uh, dad's life and legacy. And I just uh, I feel like I know the guy and yeah. uh, I, I wish I had gotten to talk to him and had become aware of him sooner because uh, I just uh, like the cut of his jib. I like how he studied these things and also how he wrote about them and the way that he acknowledged that, uh, of course, numbers would never provide the entire answer and right. you would have to consider the conditions on that day and, and the human factors and such. And so it it seems like he was not... Overconfident in the numbers, but he really accomplished uh, a lot and was just so ahead of his time, too ahead of his time in a sense. Yeah. But- Lived long enough that he was able to see the future that he envisioned come to fruition and and apparently feel a little bit validated as he should be. So uh, quite a a character, quite a trailblazer and a sabermetric pioneer who uh, I think should have more attention brought to him.
0: Well, and I like that, I don't know, I think maybe this comes with the humility of knowing that he didn't have the full answer and that the computer couldn't do it on its own. But, you know, I feel like the stereotype of the sabermetrician is that there is something like cold and emotionally removed from the way that they engage with the sport. And clearly, like, the sport meant something to him. And, mm-hmm. and he pass that appreciation on to his kid and so like that i don't know i just i was struck by that i was like this was a baseball family and Mm -hmm. i think sometimes not anyone listening to this podcast who knows that baseball is really about pooping yourself but um (laughs) that you know people who have a stereotype of the nerd the analytics Mm -hmm. nerd might think that you're less likely to pass it on and that doesn't have to be true so i like that Mm -hmm. part
1: too Yeah. And I found that uh, he is actually mentioned briefly in a great book by Alan Schwartz called The Numbers Game, Baseball's Lifelong Fascination with Statistics. And there's a passage that says the computer changed the face of statistical baseball analysis, whereas the George Lindsay's had to do everything with pencil and slide rule. More and more academics with access to mainframe power summoned the new machine as simulation tool and tireless number cruncher. Dick Truman of California State University, Northridge, who, as early as 1959, had written a Monte Carlo approach to the analysis of baseball strategy for operations research 15 years later, wrote a simulation program to computerize his investigations. So he is memorialized in that book. And Jacob Pomranke, our past pass blaster. He confirmed that Dick Truman was a Sabre member in the late 1970s and early 80s, and he was active in the early statistical analysis committee. Didn't seem to write anything for publication for Sabre at the time, but he did attend the 1980 Sabre convention in Los Angeles where he met Pete Palmer for the first time in person. Pete Palmer probably along with Bill James, uh, one of the the titans of early sabermetric research and known as the co-author of The Hidden Game of Baseball and inventor of linear weights and OPS. And I emailed Pete Palmer to ask if he remembered anything about Dick Truman, and he did. He remembered meeting him and corresponding with him. And he wrote to me that, Truman had gotten copies of the play-by-play coding that the Elias Sports Bureau did for the Mills brothers for their player win averages book, and Dick analyzed the Mills data and figured out— that key relief pitchers can have their innings worth about double other pitchers in terms of win probability impact. And Pete says, I had a footnote in the hidden game of baseball about that, which Tom Tango saw years later and that got him working on leverage. And we both came up with the idea around 2005 by almost identical methods. So in a roundabout indirect way, I guess uh, Dick Truman's studies on, on that led to, The leverage that we have now, and that's factored into war and everything. And Pete Palmer said that Dick certainly would qualify as a pioneer. And he noted, Pete did, that it's kind of amazing that those two stories that I read on the episode 1974, Past blast were almost identical, even though they were published 15 years apart. Hmm. And that just goes to show that progress was not rapid at the time and acceptance wasn't either. And prior to Sabre, there wasn't really much opportunity to publish. So it was sort of voices crying in the wilderness and it wasn't all that different in 1950. 59 from 1974 Whereas now 15 years uh, Changes everything when it comes to baseball analysis Yeah And finally, Greg Truman Who you just heard from he sent me a, a whole lot of uh, files, his his dad's papers and research and studies. And I collected some from other sources, too. And he sent me some pictures of his dad as well and uh, notes and correspondence that he had. And it's uh, really interesting stuff to me, at least. And so I will link to that on the show page. I, I have a little uh, Dick Truman collection here of, of all these archives and it's uh, really interesting just correspondence uh, from decades ago with Earnshaw Cook, another trailblazer, and and Pete Palmer as well. And uh, just a, a couple things I wanted to highlight here. For one, there is in this collection a, a letter that Dick Truman wrote to Pete Bavese, who was the vice president and general manager of the Padres in May of 1975. And he wrote, Dear Mr. Vivasi, as you suggested in our phone conversation last week, this letter is an attempt to give you some idea of the work that I've done on baseball analysis and how it can be put to practical use by a ball club. Over a period of years, I've developed a computer program which performs a number of different analyses based on the batting statistics of the individual players in any specified lineup. These analyses are primarily directed toward the evaluation of strategies such as the sacrifice, stolen base, squeeze play, and intentional pass. Every strategy has a desired goals such as maximizing the chance of scoring at least one run it seems most reasonable that a strategy should only be used if its probability of success is high enough so that the expectation of achieving this goal will be at least as great as if the strategy had not been attempted therefore the approach used is based on the concept of a so-called break-even success probability and then he runs through a specific example of that And finishes uh, the letter by saying, the computer program can also be used to quickly evaluate the run scoring potential of many different lineup orders. Not only does this offer an important aid in the selection of the most productive lineup, but it makes possible a quantitative evaluation of the merits from a hitting standpoint of possible player trades. Managers are always talking about playing percentage baseball, but to do so, it is clear that they need to have a pretty good idea of the break-even success probability for each strategy considered. How many managers do you think really have any idea of the break-even success probability for such strategies as a double steal with runners Mm -hmm. on first and second with two outs, the squeeze play with one out, or the sacrifice with runners on first and second and no outs? The analyses that can be developed to aid manager John McNamara could be worth an additional five to ten wins per season. And it is also conceivable that fan interest could be increased by effective PR involving some of the ideas presented here. Your interest is appreciated and I'm looking forward to meeting with you personally. And then also in this file, there's a, a letter back from Pete Bavese in early June of 1975 Dear Richard, thank you for your recent letter explaining your break-even success probability program. Over the years, we have examined several different computerized statistical analysis programs, but because of lack of interest on the part of our manager and coaching staff, we have (laughs) not adopted any of them. I will discuss the framework of your plan with John McNamara, and if he has an interest in pursuing it, I will contact you. (laughs) I don't see anything further about it, so I'm guessing he didn't have a great interest in pursuing it. (laughs) Yeah, For a while there, Dick Truman was uh, trying to reach out to teams and see if anyone was interested. And There's a letter also in this file from 1984 after he had dropped out of Sabre. He said, I simply decided that my baseball research was too time and energy consuming and was not leading to any productive end. I've been there. (laughs) But also he wrote, I'm afraid that I really have lost interest in grinding out more baseball statistics on historical data, even the World Series on Second Thought. I had really hoped that I would be able to develop offensive and pitching performance measures, which would be used to evaluate players' performance in a timely and meaningful fashion, such as at contract renewal time or when considering potential trades. This has not come to pass, obviously. It clearly needs a lot of pushing and the right connections with the ball clubs. Hmm. If someone in a position of authority on a major league club were to indicate an interest in current player evaluations, then I would definitely consider further involvement. But that's as likely as the proverbial snowball in Hades. <laughs> so that was as late as 1984, and he had been at it for decades at that point. So that's uh, Dick Truman, and I'd encourage everyone to peruse these papers. It's pretty enlightening stuff, because it was just really hard to determine the answers to questions uh, we take for granted just how easy it is to look things up now. Yeah, and Back then, just like the data didn't exist, and yeah. it was just impossible to, to process it. So it just took an... an extraordinary amount of, of uh, effort to answer just any kind of question. And so I have a lot of respect for the the pioneers who were doing it. And I think he was doing it as early as anyone, if not earlier. So I'm glad to know a little bit more about him. Yeah. All right, by the way, Jacob Pabrenki also unearthed a brief mention of Dick Truman in Sports Illustrated on August 24th, 1964. This item was mostly about Earnshaw Cook. And it says, Meanwhile, things have been happening which portend that Cook, hooted at for his claims, may yet have a revolutionary impact on the game. Two National League clubs have approached him for more information, and Cook is meeting this week with Richard E. Truman, an operations research scientist from Woodland Hills, California, who also has been analyzing baseball strategy. Operating independently of Cook, he has come to quite similar conclusions. Baseball's long-fancied scientific percentage game is beginning to look more and more like superstition. Just to unite our pass blasts from 74 and 75, there is a paper in the Truman Files where Dick defends the DH. He writes, Personally, I find it most unexciting to watch the average pitcher bat. More often than not, he strikes out, generally with the bat on his shoulder or waves ineffectually at a pitch which may or may not be in the strike zone. In many cases, the manager would just as soon the pitcher did strike out. Heaven forbid that he should waste his valuable energy running out a batted ball or actually becoming a base runner. With the average pitcher batting around 100, he is, in essence, an automatic out. And that was 50 years ago. Preach, Mr. Truman. You can support Effectively Wild and our ongoing research into early sabermetric pioneers and or dodgers in intestinal distress by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild and pledging some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad free and get yourself access to some perks, as have the following five listeners. Andreas, Brad Rowland, Justine Liebenson, totally not the Scranton Strangler, and George Boff, thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for Patreon supporters, so close to a thousand members in the group now, the more the merrier. You also get access to monthly bonus episodes, playoff live streams, discounts on merch, and ad-free Fangraphs memberships, and many more goodies. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can contact us through the Patreon site. If not, you can email us at podcast at fangrass.com. You can also rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod. And you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. I think applications are closed now for our editor position. We've just gotten so much interest and so many applicants. And we have to make a decision pretty soon here. And we probably have more than enough qualified people who are interested, which is flattering. So sorry if you didn't get a chance to apply. We've got to close the floodgates. But for now, Dylan Higgins remains our editor and producer. And we are grateful to him. And I'm sure he is grateful that he got to stick around long enough to insert the sound of K. Hernandez saying F yeah as he sharded. We'll be back before the end of the week with the Dodgers and Cubs preview pod. Talk to you then. Stay above the flat line
2: I'm ahead of the curve Take a piece of the sunshine with me On an all-night drive to another world You can get what you want now Knock it out of the park Probably you Drifter lonely but I'm still hoping for a change of heart and a place, a place, a place